0: I've spent all my you know, last many, many years in graduate school and teaching, thinking about the 60s and the Vietnam War. So all I can think about is like Nixon. And I can think uh, with, when I'm thinking about Trump, I'm thinking about Nixon. And I'm thinking about Reagan.
1: That's David Parsons, a social
0: and cultural historian of 20th
1: century America at New York University and host of The Nostalgia Trap, a podcast that features interviews with writers and cultural figures on the left. Today we hear from David about the current state of left critique in America. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hallenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. In 2014, David Parsons began recording interviews, mostly with historians, but also critics and writers and artists, all of whom were on the left. He started recording these conversations because, as he put it then, felt like we were living in a revolutionary moment. Now in the wake of election 2016, it's safe to say that pretty much everyone on the left and the right would agree with him. So in today's episode, I asked David about some of the historians and critics he's had on The Nostalgia Trap. David describes why he moved from being a fan of Rush Limbaugh as a kid to being a committed leftist at UC Santa Barbara, a shift he has not reversed. David also talks about some folks on the left working in the trenches, so to speak, including the hosts of the cult favorite podcast, Chapo Trap House. Finally, I asked David a bit about what it's like being a young scholar in the academy and whether he thinks it's incumbent upon scholars in the digital age to try to present their work to the public. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Uh, David Parsons, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Sure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So on your podcast, The Nostalgia Trap, you talk with academics and writers, artists and filmmakers, all of whom are generally, if not very specifically, associated with the left. Uh, In your first episode, you introduce your podcast in a really interesting way, uh, which I want to ask about. You say that you hope to conduct interviews which help us, quote, investigate this moment this revolutionary moment Mm
0: -hmm. when you
1: started the podcast back in 2014 what were you feeling or thinking about the state of politics in america Uh, what was revolutionary about that moment as you saw it and why did you decide to start a podcast in which you talk with people on the left in order to assess that moment
0: um wow that's 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 a lot i mean i'm trying to think when i first started When I first started the podcast, my original thought was, and this is super dorky, but I was like, I wanted to do a Mark Marin WTF type show uh, for the academic left because I felt like I had been in graduate school. And this is, you know, when I started, I I had just completed my PhD and had left graduate school. So I think, you know, there's always, there are always these, these moments in people's lives that, you know, when you end something big. And for me, it's been like ending a particular academic program, but like, I find lots of people find get to a crisis moment when they're done with a program like that, especially undergrads. I mean, watching so many undergrads graduate and then figure out what's next, I, I kind of was I, I didn't want to lose track of what everything and everyone that I had uh, that met and and learned about in graduate school. I wanted to like keep it going and talk to those people. I felt like I knew a lot of really smart people that I wish the rest of the world knew about. Um, and those included just my, I mean, when it first started out, just my professors, I wanted people to know about like Josh Freeman and James Oaks and yeah, Eric Foner eventually. Um, but I felt like, yeah, that, 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 I wanted people to hear the voices of people that you don't really hear in the culture that much. That would be academics, but especially like left-wing academics. I mean, in terms of the revolutionary moment, I mean, that's a bigger question for me. Like I used to be, when I was really young, I was much more like, psychedelic apocalyptic person very much into like the 2012 prophecy i don't know if like how many people were into that like i was into this like very young like i mean like 2001 2002 maybe i was Do you in... mean
1: into it because you were interested in the idea of um conspiracies or uh, Act- no actually or like the mayan calendar okay. like i like
0: I, I literally i mean nostalgia trap listeners probably know that i like i've mentioned terrence mckenna quite a bit but like i, I got into this kind of like i don't know this this very dangerous cocktail of philosophers. It'd be Terence McKenna and Noam Chomsky, and those two together, like Noam Chomsky for the kind of I don't know, like like somewhat Marxist interpretation of the world, and McKenna for a, a, a kind of like psychedelic cosmonaut kind of druggy interpretation of the world. Those two things resonated with me together, and you know, made me see the world like the Bush years in particular. Those are, those were formative years for me, and like I felt like it was a very I, you know, a very apocalyptic moment. And by apocalyptic, I don't necessarily mean like the end of the world. I, I more mean kind of a, I mean, you you put it as revolutionary. I feel like we're in a, a, a really kind of hyper-resonant transformative moment on the planet Earth for a lot of different reasons. And yeah, Nostalgia Trap is just one way of recording the left's view of that. Uh, because I think the left, if, if anything, like even if we don't ever get our vision enacted, the the vision needs to be. It needs to be talked about. I mean, Mm -hmm. the vision of the left and whatever it might be, uh, I feel like is is, is worth having a public airing. So uh, one thing that you said that was really interesting uh, and
1: that resonates with, at least my take on your show or read of your show, um, is that you do care a great deal about and are are very interested in the lives of the people uh, Mm -hmm. that you interview. And you said you really wanted your listeners just to sort of know about some of your professors, not just their ideas, their arguments, but uh, the sort of lives they've Led and particularly how they grew up and how their upbringing sort of affected their kind of political take and their political yeah, understanding yeah. Of, uh-huh. of particularly American life. Um, why do you? I guess my question is why do you? Why do you interview in that way? What yeah. kind of unique like light, light do you think it sheds on your uh, well, your guests?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I I, I guess I I, w- I always and that was that's the, the Mark Maron element of it is the kind of like intersection of biography and then career politics li- and lives and kind of like how how the things that have how people grow up and how that impacts, you know, how they develop their ideas, that fascinated me since I was young because I, I, I kind of was a person that didn't, didn't have a family that was super political, uh, didn't have a family that was uh, um, super in, engaged in the political world at all. But yet I meet all these people that did, and and you know the, it, it's to me it's kind of fascinating to see the relationship between. You know, your family's politics and how you you arrive. I mean, uh, in California, there are so many there are so many conservative kids who had hippie parents and vice versa that I thought there was kind of I always thought there was an interesting connection between like either absorbing your parents politics or bouncing off of your parents politics into the other other extreme. Um, but yeah, the, for, for me, like I was sitting in graduate school, looking at these professors, I, I it's that's one of the things I always wanted to know is kind of like, what were they like in high school and how did they come to study this stuff? Because it's not a normal thing to do. Like academia is a very, very specific and, and, and specialized environment that, that, you know, if you're not, if your family isn't in it and mine, mine isn't, it's kind of an odd choice to make. And so I always want to know why people make those choices.
1: So you mentioned California. Did you you grew up there, and your family, as you say, wasn't very politically engaged.
0: Well, I mean, I, when I say politically engaged, I just mean my parents are like ordinary uh, middle class people that that aren't. I'm not a red diaper baby. Like so many of the people that I interview, I'm like, so where do you get your politics? And they're like, oh well, you know, my 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 parents were you know anti nuclear protesters, and I was at protests since I was a kid. Like so many of them. It's it, in other words, like it's that there's like this. I don't know there's a there's a real you know biological or you know a trajectory when it comes to politics and 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 tracing that is really interesting to me yeah for my parents i mean my dad and i mentioned this on the show my dad's been a guest on the show i mean my dad talks about history a lot and and for him like the vietnam war and the 1960s were things that were you know happening to him when he was very young he didn't go to vietnam but he was in the in the marines during that era um and you know, those were signal events for him. He never stopped talking to me about the 1960s. And I ended up being like a scholar of the 1960s. And my book is about the Vietnam War. Uh, uh, you know, that, that that there's a through line there, you know, between talking to my dad when I'm a kid about this stuff and becoming a scholar of it later. And I wonder if that's true of other people, too. And that's part of what I, I want to know on the show.
1: That's interesting. So when you say that you, you grew up kind of aware of generally uh, the 60s generation and uh, the, the Vietnam War. D- but but still would you describe your upbringing as kind of moderate i mean how, how would you characterize your early interest in the vietnam war and then how did you develop to become more politically engaged politically uh oh happen?
0: man that's uh, so I feel like, you know, in high school, I was, and I've, I've also mentioned this on the show. This is like, a you know, an embarrassing, but as I get older and older, it's not so much embarrassing because it was so short because I was like, I mean, I was the Alex P. Keaton family ties, like conservative kid in high school that really like, it was the night, it was the mid nineties. Clinton was in office. I hated Bill Clinton. I really like subjected to my- myself to a lot of rushed Limbaugh who was like, this is what I worry about with the alt-right shit. Like I know we're not talking about Trump, but like the thing about Rush Limbaugh in high school to me, because I went to a high school in Southern California that was surrounded by very like progressive liberals, but were all came from moneyed families. So they were like all like kind of yuppie families. I guess the equivalent of like in Brooklyn, like Park Slope families. Right. And they were all very liberal. And it was like that they were all, um you know, they had they had, you know, all the right bumper stickers and everything like that. But. Uh, being Rush Limbaugh and and all that stuff had like this punk rock edge to it. Like it was like, it was, and it was, you know, like getting off on trolling was a little bit of that. Like I got off on like, kind of like saying shitty things in class to these people who were, I felt like they're very liberal and very sensitive. And it wasn't like, the impulse was social in other words. Like the impulse was like, I felt alienated from, from like the liberal kids. And Rush Limbaugh gave me a voice to be like, well, fuck those kids if I'm allowed to say that. Um, so it was like that's why and so I mean that phase lasted very briefly for me like I I went to UC Santa Barbara and was like you know instantly in classes that were teaching me how dumb I was about like embracing conservative politics so that that's when the conversion started for me towards a more left-wing position could you talk
1: a bit more about about that. It's just so interesting the way you described um, your experience just first listening to Rush Limbaugh and essentially attacking, feeling alienated from l- sort of liberal centrism and yeah. attacking it. And basically, the way that, I mean, if you hear a lot of people say, you know, why Trump won, often you hear this argument it's because people are sick of political correctness mm-hmm. um, but and you, smug liberals and all smug, that. Smug yeah. liberals, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what, I mean, what did you do or learn at Santa Barbara? Um, that convinced you Mm -hmm. uh, to sort of leave that position and embrace a different one?
0: Um, My freshman year, I took... black studies course. I mean, it's literally just one sentence. Freshman year, I took a black studies course. And it was a, a course with a guy who I desperately wanted to interview for The Nostalgia Trap. But he unfortunately passed away last year at UC Santa Barbara. His name was Otis Madison. He was a professor that was really just a firebrand. He was like his only... I mean, the best thing about him wasn't his research or his scholarship. His He was just a, a personality on, on stage. Like We had big lectures. That was... UC Santa Barbara the whole UC model, University of California model is uh, um, big lectures and then you do you split off into smaller sections with like graduate students. So you do big like, big lectures with star academics. And Otis Madison was definitely a star in the sense of like people really wanted to listen to him. And he like just ranted and raved about like about race in America in a way that I had never heard talked about and like specifically and this is funny because i'm in the middle of watching that like oj simpson made in america thing right now I am too, which actually. was yeah which is amazing and like it gives me such perspective on the things that were happening to me when i was like 16 7 i mean 15 i guess which were like these were formative years and like the oj case um all of that uh, were a big part of were a big part of like me being young but anyway otis madison talked about the oj case he talked about jerry springer and like what the the, the effect of jerry springer is on on uh on, on the way people look at poor people, on the way people look at poor white people versus poor black people. He just like kinda blew my mind. Um not with like necessarily really high level stuff. Again, he was just doing like close reading, media analysis, letting us know like what's really going on around us. And it gave me a perspective that coming from small, middle class suburbia, just you know, forty miles south of Santa Barbara, um i i felt like i i found a new world at uc santa barbara and a new perspective on that world um so that's that's part of it yeah
1: so so i have more questions about your sort of entry into academia and some of your changing views I, i'll ask um though a couple more uh sort of questions about uh your podcast and who you interview mm-hmm. um so i mean the it's it's it, i think it's the case that with exceptions like eric foner or sort of major academics the people you interview uh, they're they're rarely like Paul Krugman or like that right, right. at the times so right they're usually people who are sort of on the ground sort of in the trenches and who really are self-consciously on the left mm, uh, mm-hmm. um, so why why regularly host that particular kind of guest what insight or critique do you think they have into American mm-hmm. politics today that you think is valuable
0: um well first of all I think a product of that's a product of the fact that I you know went to Graduate school at the City University of New York, which is a a very working class school and very left wing school in the sense that there are a lot of people that go there that embrace, you know, Marxist, anarchist, communist stuff. And like, I, you know, I I got I I think came to the Graduate Center pretty radical already, but became even more so um, or or more, I don't know, more a, a more nuanced radicalism, I hope um but that it's so that's part of it's just that's the pool of people i know you know are people that are in the trenches and that's we really call it the the trenches at cuny because it's like you know you're with a population that's a population that's you know very working class very um uh very much people of color very much uh many 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 immigrants and so it's that population it's hard not to be left-wing it's hard not to like and, and that that sounds like condescending to people who aren't i guess but but when you're when you're in that environment and seeing in particular how you know call it capitalism call it the system call it whatever it is is like pushing itself on certain populations um you it, it it's hard not to develop that politics and so what those people that that I interview can bring for me is like an analysis of politics that's from somewhere that's like you're in touch with young people I mean that's part of what I am interested in is kind of like do you know what's going on with people who are 20 years old, 18 to 22 years old? Do you know what their hopes and dreams are and what their what, what their concerns are about and what their lives are like? And I feel like those teachers that I interview, I mean, it's mostly, I guess, young professors are people who are concerned with that population and, and, and I wanna hear kind of what their attitude is towards that population. How do we move them? And it's not about like indoctrinating them in the left-wing values, it's more like, how do we, I don't know, how do we have, how do we ha- have a a university that 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 functions to for for people that are really really uh, many of them are on the periphery of this society
1: so uh, another question's another question excuse me about guests um we were talking just before uh, we started recording about uh, Chapo Trap House, mm-hmm. which is yeah. which is sort of they're sort of having a moment. Yeah, Wait, remember, who are those guys? Yeah, yeah exactly. never heard of yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I, I remember just listening to their sort of early episodes um, when they were just starting out, and I mean there was a certain like energy to the show. It seemed like it was sort of um, getting uh, gaining a lot of momentum, but right around the time of election twenty sixteen is when it really sort of kicked off, and, and you had. The original sort of trio mm-hmm. on Will yeah. Menaker, Felix Biederman, and Matt Chrisman. Why, why those three? What 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 was interesting to you about their podcast and about their sort of um, their their sort of le- sort of irony left take?
0: Well, it. yeah. Well, I mean, I I think I've, I've talked about this on the show a little bit in terms of uh, when I had all those guys on. Um, you know, part of it is uh, they're really popular, and I want them on the show so so people will listen to my show, too. Um, that You know, you talk about, like, Paul Krugman or something. I'd love to have Paul Krugman on. Um, you know, all these loser left young academics. I'd like to talk to some people with some actual hits here. Um, but, yeah, the Chapel Trap House guys, uh, I, I happen to know Will Meneker from uh, graduate school. I mean, he was in some of my classes at the CUNY Graduate Center. Um, I always thought Will was a super funny, smart guy. And when he started a podcast, I was like... I knew that, I mean, he has a lot of Twitter followers and like the, all those guys did, I think, when they first started. So like they had a base already, um, but I really, I don't know, that whatever that, I, I think it, for me, I hope that what Chapo Trap House is doing is able to like get out of that Twitter thing that like left t- irony, young person, Twitter. I, I feel like th- that's a really great like base for building something bigger and into the wider culture. But right now it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to judge how like, uh, how isolated their audience is, I think. But in terms of, you know, where they come from, why they're popular, uh, for me, it's just 100% about the election in 2016 and how shitty the Democrats were to Bernie Sanders and where a lot of the young energy was. I feel like, and I could be wrong about this, but I feel like most of Chapo's listeners are pretty young um, and young people uh, were not feeling Hillary Clinton. And they offered a voice that that kind of drilled through a lot of the bullshit that was put out there by the Democratic Party. And I think they had a, a, a voice that was funny and entertaining and hit at exactly the right moment. So, I, I mean, I wanted to talk to them because, you know, I, I think that their voice is, is real. I mean, they're really funny guys, first of all. But also, you know, they've got kind of a, they're onto something in terms of how how the, the, the media relates to authenticity and how it relates to youth. They, they, they've got a, a voice that's, I think, one that I would anticipate growing during the Trump years but that's that's part of why I wanted to talk to them yeah
1: so I you you mentioned that you were concerned at least that their their base of their audience base is 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 sort of marginal it's it's in the Twitter sphere uh, and you're hoping, perhaps, that, that, that they might sort of break out of that, uh, particularly after, it seems like particularly after this election, as uh, the, the center, as they say, is not holding, mm-hmm. and people are either moving left or they're moving right. Perhaps they will have a large audience. What, one thing I've, I'm, I'm wondering um, is, do you think, at least right now, if uh, their podcast and podcasts like it, if, if they have a marginal audience, is it because they're sort of, uh, sort of stalwartly kind of on the left they're committed to that perspective um or is it uh, you know i've heard this this critique a bit as well that it's a kind of a form of of brocialism or the sort of mm, like bernie yeah. bro approach with which they, which they yeah. ridicule on, yes. on their show uh-huh. um but I'm, I'm wondering i'm wondering your take on that yeah is it, is it is it because they don't they don't give enough credence to questions of say gender and race or something
0: well i mean i don't i i don't i don't know i mean for, for me i mean i hate all the like bernie bro brocialist stuff i feel like as uh, i mean we know it, it, that's in part you know a meme you know created and promoted by the by the the clinton campaign and the democratic party colluding with them but but also i mean it's just kind of such a stupid stereotype um but yeah i mean i do feel like there's if there's anything that's like exclusionary of about like that stuff is it's, there's kind of a clickishness about the language. Like you have to know the right codes. Like there's something that Freddie DeBoer, I think would talk about, even though Freddie and I are both huge Chapo fans, like, you know, the, the idea that like you, you got to know the right lingo and like, it's, I mean, it's a, it's an insider thing. Like, and, and, and it's like calculated by them. I mean, they're like, they've got the gray wolf thing and the whole kind of like success win strategies. And like, they've got a whole language that is, is, I mean, you call it whatever it is it's a brand, whatever. I mean, it's sharp. For me, it's, like, really sharp. And, like, it, for me, uh, fu- I forgive that stuff because it functions as a really great container for so much of what the show is about, you know, and, and like, spreading their, their ideas. And, and, and in a lot of ways, the show the show is, is, is a ser- very, very serious show. And, and that's what I, I, I kind of appreciate about it. And I think that also, you know, when you have uh, – I, I could anticipate a million, like, Chapo Trap House uh, imitators that are just awful that don't have that strident, like earnest seriousness underneath all the jokes that would just have the kind of, um, and you see that. I mean, if you just like look at chat, like the, the people that follow Chapo on Twitter, some of them are like really cringy, awful jokes that don't get really the nuance of what they're doing. So it's kind of, I mean, it's a dangerous line when you're doing that polit- politically incorrect stuff. And I mean, I do some of it on the show myself because I, I, I'm not really a, I'm not really a pro PC liberal at all. But at the same time, I understand that you know, people are sensitive and, and like, I, I, I can't go fully into that. Like Alex Jones, Howard Stern, I don't know, a shock jock thing, you know, whatever that is. Uh, Um, there's a, there's a, it's a real, for me, it's a, it's, there's a real conflict in myself between like being that person and wanting to like, you know, engage in all the jokes and irony. And at the same time, I don't know. I'm a very serious political person. At the same time, I take I take things very seriously. You've
1: talked about um, well. I mean, speaking of having a language all your own or a language of your group, you've talked about uh, finding a family on the left. Yeah. On your show. Yeah. Um, I remember in your intro to um, the first Freddie because you just recorded another show or episode with Freddie DeBoer, but mm-hmm. I think in your first one, you you said how important it's been to you to find a family on the left, and probably was for him to sort of develop a close community of, of, of like-minded people. Mm. I mean, that's, that's got to give you, I imagine a a real sense of political purpose and solidarity at the same time. Do you ever feel limited by, by living in and sort of discoursing with such a community um, quite a lot? That's to ask by surrounding yourself with and surely debating with people on the left regularly. Do you ever feel less able to understand the right or the Mm. center? Yeah. Uh,
0: Um, for me, a lot of that, what you're talking about is mostly stuff that's 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 happening and dangerous online, which is like, you know, the stuff about, I mean, this is in, I think he does it in the Adam Curtis hyper normalization movie, like Adam Curtis talks about the, uh, you know, the echo chamber of social media and the idea of like, basically, I mean, loading up like loading up your social media with people that agree with you and then just reading it all day and clicking yes 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 and then people that are like slightly out of that no 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 and it's like yeah it is it is kind of a dumb way of grouping people um I I don't really do politics in real life all that much besides the podcast I guess and the podcast is like a form of social media too so I mean in terms of like that whole idea of like, maybe we should talk to each other and talk to the, I should talk to the right and understand them more. Um, I mean, call it like, call it unfair or call it like shitty. I don't know. I I, I don't care to talk to the right too much. Um, I, I don't care to like engage with certain pieces of the right. I do have, uh, I do like people that have, I don't like people that are just like doctrinaire Marxists. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk to people on the left that are just like 100%. The left is right and that's it. I mean, a lot of the people associated with, like, Jacobin, I find, like, excruciating. I'm, like, not really willing to talk to them about like, – I, I, I'm bored. Their their minds are made up, and that's that. So, I mean, I'm looking for people that are, like, thinking outside the box, but I still, like – I don't know. That's why I have – this is, like, maybe people will cringe about this. This is why I have, like, you know, Bob Dylan shit around. It's like, you know, here's a guy that, like, you know, he's – ostensibly on the left, but he's, he's nowhere too. um, <laughs> he's freewheeling. Yeah. I talked to, a uh, Th- uh, Thaddeus Russell. Uh, I don't know if you know that scholar, but like, he's like a, I, w- I don't know if I would put him on the right or left. I, he's all over the place. And even, I think mean, Freddie DeBoer, I mean, he, as much as he's like a left guy, he has a lot of opinions that are like outside of that. So I'm not, I mean, I will say that I'm pretty agnostic about a lot of this politics as much as I'm like a left person. Um, I have ideas about what's right and what's wrong, and that's about it.
1: Okay, so I, I, y- you often hear um, when sort of everyone, both on the left and right, are sort of looking back at what happened in election 2016. Yes. One of the things you hear so often is um, a critique of of mainstream political commentators right. uh, who, because they were in their own echo chambers, could not see the significance of of Trump's kind of insurgency in the Republican party. Um, and, and the shock for Americans in the center or on the left, um, uh, sort of in the wake of this election is often attributed to that—that that they just kind of, in a sense, weren't ready for it because they right. didn't know what was happening, right. Because they weren't listening. Um, what do you, What do you think about that uh, mm-hmm. sort of diagnosis?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I I, I was th- I was the same person. I was telling my classes that you know Hillary Clinton was going to win, and I I felt like very very secure in that. I mean, I don't feel like I was a smug East Coast liberal. I felt like I had a faith in the Democratic Party's ability to sew so up this this election um and in terms of the trump insurgency i always felt like there was something going on with it uh um but in terms of like what what we what we missed uh, um god i i i am still unpacking that i think we all are still i it's, i'm really really hesitant to like begin like it's so funny to everybody and then this includes like chapo cory robin i mean all of them got it wrong And then we're immediately like the, the, and, and, and myself on the podcast, I did the same thing We're like, Oh Jesus, we really got that wrong. How blind were we? We're really terrible at reading politics. I just completely missed that. Okay. Here's my reading of politics and what went wrong, you know, and just got right back into it. Right. Like, right. Like tell just basically our analysis is worthless, but now let's listen to our analysis over and over again. Right. So that's why I'm really hesitant to analyze right now. Like the people are like grouping, people are, already grouping themselves into pr- like predictive tendencies of like here's I, I it's the people that are all think that this is all going to crumble because of Russia and there are others that think that you know he's going to resign under the pressure like all these predictions of what's going to happen um and I, I just feel like i i can't engage in that i don't know i i, I don't know um how to read it and, and i don't I, I really don't know how to read his supporters and how mm. bi- how much support he has across the country it's really it's really tricky
1: for someone for someone sort of in or someone working around the academy what is the alternative to analysis is it sort of like this sort of <laughs> yeah. humble sitting down and just watching or is it Or well is it like activism
0: i mean or w- i'm what? a historian yeah. so my thing is entirely like let's go back and see other examples of when this is ha- when this has happened and i mean that's why i've, I've been i mean for me, I mean, it, this is another example of like you know you see things the way that you've packed your your, your life with all the all, all the different whether it be books, uh, people, uh, social media accounts. You pack your life with all that analysis, and it's en- going to end up you know skewed. And for me, I've spent all my you know last many many years in graduate school and teaching thinking about the '60s and the Vietnam War. So all I can think about is like Nixon, and I can think uh, with when I'm thinking about Trump, I'm thinking about Nixon. And I'm thinking about Reagan, right? And these two like figures. Corey Robin, of course, thinks like this is all Jimmy Carter, right? Um, But either way, that kind of analysis of like going back historically and kind of seeing examples from the past and what's happened. That's where I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable assessing that stuff um, because there's been some time. I I guess I I have actually, after this many years, internalized my training as a historian and really see things as like, well, we can make judgments about Nixon now but about trump it's it it, let's go back to nixon again right it's like there's always making judgments about about history in real time is really really tricky so when you go
1: back to nixon to uh analyze trump what what are the first few things that come to mind for you
0: uh just the the for me it's like the 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 real hostility and paranoia uh, about the the hostility to and paranoia about the press and about the kind of liberal establishment and how um how he talked in a very, very aggressive way towards the, the press as this kind of like monolithic entity that represented a lot of what, what he would call the liberal establishment and how that energized like a whole portion of the population that, that really like moved towards what would be Trump supporters, right? Of like seeing the world in a very, very different way. I mean, Nixon I see is the guy that of really, really nailed down the, the collapse of the, of the whatever liberal consensus there was um, and moved us into opened up a possibility for a more extreme right wing. So, you know, Nixon, there's the, that's just one example of the, the paranoia about the press. There are many, many others. I, I hope what I hope is that, that what Trump shares with Nixon is um, a kind of the blatant illegality, because that's what undid Nixon. But even I mean, the people, the liberals that are super excited about like oh Trump lied and we're going to get him. It's like even if that's true, that process is agonizing and takes years, like to impeach a president or to do an inv- uh, a federal investigation. And all of that just tore the country up for years. So it's, you know, it's it if it goes that way, it's nothing to celebrate for sure. Uh, either. I mean, I don't want the guy to be, be, be our president, of, of course. But um, in terms of taking him out, it's not easy. So you've talked with obviously a ton of people
1: on the left about, well, if not uh, specifically about Trump, um, then generally about the current uh, political situation. What do you think is the state of left critique generally and I ask because earlier you said you found it agonizing um, to talk with some people sort of on the hard left or mm-hmm. some people associated with magazines such as Jacobin I'm just wondering could could you could you sort of walk me through why you would find it agonizing to talk to some of those people who do you think has the best critique right now
0: well I mean first of all I would talk to anyone from Jacobin obviously you know I really for me like Jacobin is too academic like I, I, I and that's funny coming from me as an academic, but like there's a certain kind of like theory head academic that I'm just not interested in, like engaging that w- in, in part because I don't know that, that school that much of, of like high theory. Um, and I'm not terribly interested in that, but in terms of like, uh, uh like who has the great left critiques right now? I- I mean, I listen to like the the, the 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 stuff that I listen to the most, like right now I'm listening to like Jeremy Scahill's Intercept podcast and, and Naomi Klein. Like I, I like the old voices. I always say it's with the old left, but which is like funny to say because there've been so many old and new lefts. But like for me, my voices that I, I came up listening to were people that were, uh, that were really talking most about foreign policy, American foreign policy and talking about climate change. Like those are the two issues that, that energized me the most. So that's why I mentioned like Jeremy Skahill and Naomi Klein, because both of those people um, have like really, really strident left critiques of what's going on, but they, they're also focused on particular issues. Like Klein is like pretty, pretty focused on environmentalism and, and and Skahill is is, is just all about America's insane war. So those are the two issues that really energize me. And, and then in terms of like the uh, domestic, like economic stuff, um, I, I, again like for 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 theorists I, I i really just grab whoever whoever makes sense to me i uh, i feel like the the voice that's that's out there the most in terms of like really talking about this stuff publicly is bernie sanders and like i don't think of him as like obviously like a socialist theorist at all but he's he's really i was really not into bernie sanders when it first started i was just really very this guy my idea was like i've been around the left for a long time and sanders has been there as like an ineffective dude that's just been at all the rallies and saying the right things and that's that but like i realize more and more how much the bernie sanders thing is not about bernie at, at all it's just like it, i mean the way he packages the stuff the way he packages the economic message in particular and like talks about um in particular like the things that young people care about like healthcare care and college education like um those things those things are important to communicate in a way that 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 makes sense, and I think he does that. Mm.
1: One thing that's really interesting about um, commentary on the left right now is that it, there seems to be a kind of renaissance of young mm-hmm. leftist critique. Yeah. I mean, with the rise of of Jacobin, which um, uh, I mean, it's a magazine. When you, when you sit down to look at it, you get a first a, a great sense of um, there is a there is a unified project here. Right, that they are right. On, on, unashamedly in a sense advancing a view and, and not just a critique, but also a set of solutions. Um, uh, you also have new magazines like the new inquiry and mm-hmm, a lot of these mm-hmm. sort of, uh, a lot of these leftist, um, both, uh, leftist critique of co- politics as well as culture. Um, There seems
0: And then the old stuff like Descent. And then the old stuff like Descent, Which is still going which Mm -hmm. is still
1: growing strong, and there are there are writers like Sarah Leonard who sort of exist at the bridge between those
0: two. Yeah, and I feel like they're getting stronger. I I mean I could be wrong about that, but I feel like I mean, The Nation and, and Descent are are magazines that were kind of stagnant for a long time and all of a sudden are enjoying this kind of renaissance right now.
1: Well and that's what I'm wondering so so that's certainly happening uh and and you are in many ways working with a lot of the people who are at various different nodes of that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of that uh network. Do you read anyone I'm wondering on the right, especially mm. part of like the sort of new movements of call it right commentary or right critique i mean there are there are sort of smaller magazines like the Washington Free Beacon, mm-hmm. but there's also obviously Breitbart. Do you read anyone on the right are are there writers? who interests you among conservatives either because you really disagree with them yeah. or because you think ah, actually this is pretty interesting
0: well i mean i don't know i i i do end up reading stuff that i would consider right right wing quite a bit um but but not necessarily like to study them or anything it's more it's more just yeah it's outrage porn for me in a lot of in a lot of ways and and you know that that's what quickly for me Turned, you know, when I was a fan of Rush Limbaugh when I was like 14, 15, 16, somewhere in there. And and then like when I turned against the right, it just became uh, the only reason I went back to them was to see what outrageous thing they were saying. Right. And so. And that's, that's part of the danger I was talking about. Right. Is kind of like that, that Howard Stern thing of like, I, I just want to find out what they're saying. Uh, and that's certainly been it true with Breitbart. I mean, it's hard not to look at some of that stuff. I, I, I was a person that was actually reading Andrew Breitbart when he was alive. I was a person that was like, had a huge smile on his, on his face when Andrew Breitbart died, um, which is so awful, but I think contains a lot of the, the kind of like animus that this man created. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I've i read, I mean, I've watched videos of Milo in it. I've watched Sam Harris on Joe Rogan a bunch. You know, I, I for me, like, I just want to make sure that these like quote unquote thinkers of the right are as dumb and hateful as I anticipate them to be. And they, they're they often, you know, not only meet my expectations, but surpass them. Like for instance, like, Sam Harris on Bill Maher. Now, the, the two of those guys, act, I mean, they act like they're liberals, that, and that's what's really distressing to me is that they package, they package, uh, you know, pretty extreme right wing Islamopho- uh, Islamophobia and like a kind of like hateful attitude towards, towards uh, Muslims as, uh, as being progressive and cool and like moving us forward. That's what I really, really. Those are the people that I think are the most dangerous. I mean, the the extreme right wing guys. Like, I mean, I guess Milo is. So I mean, Milo Maher had Milo that. on there and kind of like agreed with him until my the whole scandal, and then he Bill Maher, I think re- reversed himself and said I brought the I brought it into the sunlight, and, which is I mean all these guys are despicable. That's part of it. I mean, and and you see that on the left too. I mean, obviously there are people on the left that are like just people that are you know opportunists, whatever. But for me the 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 hideous thing of living and being alive uh, and politically uh, uh engaged starting in the 90s is watching the kind of fox news reptilian conservatives take over and 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 not only take over but have a kind of cultural legitimacy and actually like people think they're funny like the kellyanne Conway, Conway. yeah like that she's kind of like a uh a, a an archetypal figure of those of, of that group um and i find i find all of them rather hideous uh so yeah in terms of like i'm i'm generally not the person that's like I really want to read conservative stuff, and maybe I'll have my mind blown and I'll somehow temper my left wing politics. I, I, I'm too old for that. like I'm, It's like a, I read the conservative stuff to just like keep up on on how to uh, just to keep my hate strong and pure. like that's that's part of it, right. So So
1: you start, you, you begin uh, uh, your your response by saying that you you read some of these writers as outrage porn. Yes. Um, which, I mean, is obviously uh, – is obviously has proved politically powerful on both sides. Yeah, totally. In 2016. Um 2016. Uh, almost in a sense to, like, to actually fuel – like, some uh, obviously some people on the right would look to those very same people. Oh, totally. And, like, de- derive some kind of sense of political power and purpose from it. So I, I'm, I'm wondering this. Are there any writers or have there been any writers on the right who would – who have presented themselves as kind of not necessarily more moderate, but would be part of the movement of call it principled conservatism, the mm-hmm. kind of like Burkean conservatism. <laughs> um, and I think uh, you've mentioned Corey Rabin uh, and his, yeah. in, in the reactionary mind, right. He sort of lumps, he, the, the subtitle is something like, um, from Edmund Burke to Sarah Palin. Yep. The suggestion there is, uh, the, um, principled conservatives and the kind of populist, uh, cons- conservatives are sort of two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a lot of people disagree with that too. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering your take on it, and are there any principled conservatives, uh, either in the past huh. or right now, who you would read?
0: Oh man, that's that's so that's so tricky. I feel like I'm going to get in, myself into trouble with myself with that question because I'm kind of like, well, who would it be, and and would I am am I even willing to cross the line into saying that there are is such a thing as a principled conservative? Because to me, I don't really think so. I I mean I, I feel like yeah, there are principles. Uh, to conservatism, but I, I, I kind of buy Corey's Corey Robbins' thesis in reactionary mind, which is that, and in and in his other book Fear too, which is kind of a, a very playing with similar ideas, which is the this idea that there is a kind of through line of uh of, of of reaction to conservatism, particularly the way it's played out in in the United States, that's always been about kind of protecting the the power and rights of one group over the minorities that are obtaining the same power and rights through the progression of American history. So, you know, that's, for me, that's very, very just easy to read in, in my, my, in my own personal history and watching kind of uh, what conservative means in the town that I come from. It means racist. I mean, it 100% means racist. There's really, I I don't really think for me uh, in coming from Ventura California which is a very uh conservative Republican town that I, t- I told you it, ha- it also has a liberal elite um the conservatives that that are active in the town are uh, were active entirely in the 90s uh, against Im- against immigrants from Mexico and like that was their thing I mean you could see you could see build the wall like coming from decades away you know like you could see the that the nativism is like the the, the number one energizing element of conservatism where i come from is that true of all conservatives you know i don't know uh i i think it is i think that's what well it's one big element of it is that kind of like nationalism that's a very particularly racialized nationalism so yeah in terms of a, a writer a conservative writer uh i'll have to think about that yeah, that's a that, <laughs> that's a tricky one. That's uh, I don't read that much of those those kinds of writers anyway. It's like I don't read that 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 much of that that kind of politics. I read a lot of history. Okay, that ends yeah. up being that ends up being the stuff that I'm and and you know so many historians are basically like I guess centrist liberals like or or left or left people. I mean there are obviously there are conservative historians. I have some, I have I have some somewhere in here, but. Yeah, uh, I think it's it's a product of, of where I come from and how my, my that's how my my own politics develop that I feel that way. That's part of like what I'm interested in with Nostalgia Trap is that intersection of like your per, your own like personal animus, you know, and your own kind of personal orientation towards these people that drives politics. And people act like politics is just all their ideas, but it's it's their feelings too. And like that's a big part of what I want to know. It's kind of like, what were you a bullied person? you know like it's kind of like when you find you like these figures like ben shapiro online and like you know conservative figures you can kind of like read their psychology like right on the surface from the fact that like richard spencer seems like a a closeted gay guy right That seems like he's very conflicted about uh, uh uh about his own sexuality i mean i don't know if that's true i mean i could be totally reading that unfairly um but i am interested in kind of the, those intersections like why did you become a white supremacist dude it's not just because you think that white people are great there's like a whole history and a whole psychological history that and 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 sociological too like where you were grow and the people you were growing up around but let's not act like it's all just the realm of ideas
1: well and that's so so you must you must be right about that that politics have a great deal and in fact i mean it, 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 2016 might indicate that in many ways Politics have more to do, more 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 to do with feeling than Uh than ideas. Even though I think people on both sides would like to would like to say that um, that we have a politics of ideas and policy over a politics of um, of feeling. Yeah, Uh, I mean, one thing about 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 your take on that though, that I I, do you think that your Critique of people on the right, your like your your inclination to go for a psychological reading mm-hmm. of why they would be on the yeah. right. I mean, how how linked is that in um approach to someone on the right saying, "Oh, if you're on the left, it's just because you like are sen- yeah. you're sensitive, you're yeah, like a yeah, sensitive totally. snowflake."
0: No, that that th- they're not wrong. Uh, you <laughs> okay. know, like I, they're not wrong, uh, and and it's not all that. I, I, I obviously, you know, you look at the te- the people that, the people that tend to be. Liberal or on the left, you know, are they more like emotionally sensitive? That, I mean, that's a really tricky question. Uh, the, the, for me, like I've I've interviewed so many people on the left that they got to their left, they, they got to their leftism through books, through study, through being like academics. Like that's that's they would totally they would totally dispute this reading t- entirely. And and it's part of the the trick of what I'm trying to do with nostalgia trap is to get in there a little bit. So many academics and like Marxist people would be like, no, this doesn't have to do with. Like anything, but but me just reading books and figuring out that I'm smart and figuring out that I'm right, you know. And for me, it's like, well, there's something else too, and like there's so there's a, th- and, and that maybe that's why I found I find Ch- Chapo so interesting is that they're t- they're tapping into like there's like the a social outcast thing too, there's and and that's part of like part of the left has been you know alienation and cultural uh, cultural alienation. For me, like I found the left in part going down to. Uh, downtown area of my town, there was a, uh, uh, there was a head shop that sold like bongs and Jimi Hendrix posters and stuff like that. But they also had uh, left-wing literature and they also had tapes. This was, this is how old this is, this memory. They had tapes that were Noam Chomsky lectures and listening to that stuff, finding that stuff um, in real life. For me, I immediately knew that there was uh, a kind of counterculture element to left politics. And that there was like, if, if you're, if you listen to this music and you smoke pot and you grow your hair along and you hate your parents, then you should be a Marxist. And like that, that, that association was made pretty early to me that like, there was something cool, but also alienated and outside about being left wing that you know, a lot of young people, I think, identify with. And for, for you know, for, for a lot of young people, you know, maybe that's instead of finding Chomsky stuff, they're finding Chapo Trap House on SoundCloud somewhere and listening to it. Regardless, there's like an idea that, you know, there is a cultural and social psychological element to how people get to their politics. And that's part of what I want to know with Nostalgia Trap.
1: So we're we're talking a bit about associations. I'm I'm wondering. Uh, one thing I've been wanting to ask you is, um, as as we've discussed, you talk a lot with young academics, junior academics, um, and professors. Um, in many ways, they're entering an academy uh, that uh, is, well, I mean, it's 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 they're entering a precarious situation. Dying, yeah. di- You can say <laughs> it. You said, can say it. a dying yeah. institution. Well, I'm I'm proposing yep. to myself uh, to, to to enter this institution as well. So yeah, if, yeah. come on in. Yeah, <laughs> we need fine. more on a sinking ship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about that uh, in relation to your work on the podcast um, and basically for two reasons. Do you think it's incumbent upon young academics to claim more of a, republic, of a, of a public role and to do the mm-hmm. sorts of yeah. things like podcasting? One, because uh, they'll need to figure out other things to do with their time mm-hmm. in a sense. Yeah. And two, because with the rise of digital media – um, they can sort of bring the work of the academy into the public sphere and yeah. bring ideas into the public sphere.
0: Yeah, and I mean that's what I'm talking about when when I whenever I am like shitting on Jacobin, uh, which uh, about like being too academic. I, th- that's all I mean. I don't mean like that. That stuff doesn't have value. I just mean that like I really, really want the left and, and academics to talk in a language. And I don't mean like being like, hey, kids. Let's look at this Eric Foner book. Like I don't, I don't mean like you know Hamilton and like rapping about it or something. It's something cringy. I mean, I feel like there needs to be more of a, a, a kind of, you know, we're gonna let the university die. We're gonna let higher education die. we are gonna let public education die without a public trial. Like let's have the people that are in that like actually explain why it has value. And so for so long, academia has been so kind of turned inward and talking to each other it's it's not unlike what we talk about with all these different bubbles that it's like you know academia people do so much. that's part of what i was like i was at the graduate center there are people doing so much awesome work why don't more people know about it and like why can't it be like brought to people that aren't in the academy and explained to them in a way because it's also like there's no reason why ordinary quote-unquote ordinary non-academic people can't listen to this stuff find value in it and like Hear what we're discovering in the academy. I mean, it should be if it's like public research institutions, then they should be public and it should be like it, it should be um part of a project that, that that kind of describes the value of the institution. Because I think a lot of people think that professors and academics are just useless and, and they're not wrong in a lot of cases in terms of how little impact the 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 work that they're doing is, is having,
1: you know, I don't know if this was the case, um, when you were in, in grad school, but right now, I mean, it's, it's, I've got to say that in many cases, it's not just people, uh, it, like, it's not just Scott Walker saying that, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, right. that, that, like the academic right. work doesn't really, especially in the humanities, doesn't really have value. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a, a, a lot of grad students, friends of mine who I, who I talk, too, and I would count myself among them, who, I mean, they don't, they don't discredit the importance of academic work for its own sake by any means, mm-hmm. but they do, they do feel a little, um, uh, uh, a little call it concern or a bit of nausea at the thought of the thought of toiling away for a long time Uh on a very particular topic having to do with a very particular question of 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 the humanities or of history of literature or something only to have it read by six people who probably already agree with them or who are just reading it to like see the way it will relate to their work and
0: their monograph just stick it up on the shelf and collect dust and that's that's 12 years of work for that do you
1: do you think that's a kind of that's a this question might be loaded do you think that that's an element of say like 19th century mm. academic mm. Uh, like sort of german hyper specialization hmm. that we've incorporated into the academy and that will someday be phased out especially with the rise of digital media or do you think it's it's here to stay in many
0: ways well i mean i I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even go that far i mean to me it's just a part of the larger kind of like uh uh i mean part of the neoliberal project of like turning universities into profit-making institutions rather than institutions of higher learning There's that element of it. There's also just a wider cultural uh, um, hatred of and and misunderstanding of what professors do that I feel like plays right into the hands of those neoliberal forces. And I'm talking about like you know, there's like most people don't know what professors do in their lives. Like most people would could not tell you what a professor does. Um, And and that it's also been so like whatever they think professors do has been devalued so much that like. I don't know if you've seen these commercials for like University of Phoenix or like the different like, where they like basically show this like really, really drab lecture hall and some idiot professor that is droning on all the students are bored and it's like, why would you do this? Like this is old. Like this is stupid. You should get your education online and show someone like just like in a coffee shop like flicking on their phone and they're like, it's so much easier and it fits with your life. Like you can do all of your higher education on like via text message basically. And it's just like, if they're getting away with that, then there's something there's something wrong with in the wider culture that that we we've, we've and, and maybe academia is involved in it in, in this mistake of like allowing them to get away with that and allow, uh, allowing the, the the public to kind of be able to believe something like that 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 the 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 equivalent of like having having a, a, a traditional college education with lectures and readings and and class meetings could be replaced with text messages. And when you have like many people buying that, then there's a big problem. And academia has to explain. I think do a better job in kind of like uh, explaining why uh, traditional education is important, why a classroom experience is important, why the face to face is important, why like an app is not a replacement for uh, four years of study at a a university. So
1: another question related to um, to to what academia should do or ought to do uh, with respect to um, its its image not just um, in the wider culture but to its own uh, to its own adherence to its own scholars yeah I mean you've talked a bit on your podcast about um, being a young scholar being a sort of junior scholar mm-hmm. um, and sort of having to to, to, to move around and accept in many ways, contingent work. Oh, yeah. Um, and so many, I mean, so many young scholars have to do this. So many older scholars now are having to do it. it mean, explains
0: the, ag- the left-wing acad- young ac- academic thing, too. I mean, y- young academics are no different from the millennials who are coming to, the, you know, their own ideas about the limits of success in America. Uh, you know, young academics, I think, and I include myself, were kind of like... Oh, like it took me a while to kind of educate myself about the parameters of this, these institutions and how they, these institutions are under direct attack from, from the, from the forces of neoliberalism, wherever they might be. I mean, primarily like the state and financial institutions are coming after these schools that like contributes to, to your political awakening too. And, and also, you know, in terms of jumping around and being an adjunct and not finding like full-time tenure track work, like that's, that's close to the millennial thing. Whatever you talk about millennials, like not finding jobs, academics are, are experiencing that same thing where we can't all have podcasts. We can't all like brand ourselves and become like, Oh, I mean, it, when you think about like, I could a future for me as a guy that studied history for 10 years has taught history at the acad- at the college level for 12 years I have a book coming out. I have no tenure track uh, job and no prospects of full-time tenure track work. I instead like put a living together by teaching at several different, different institutions and doing public history for like museums and things like that. Um, you know, I could very easily see myself ending up being like, an Uber driver that has a GoPro on and lectures about history while I to my people that I pick up and and that's like my web show that and awesome. I, that I sell on Patreon. Yeah, <laughs> that that's like awesome. I just came up with that idea. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying is like not everyone can do that. Like yeah. if we're saying that that's what everyone should do, like you you gave up you you studied for ten years to end up like trying to brand yourself on a podcast. There's something. I mean as much as I love my podcast as much as I can, will continue to do this and I and and I and I I believe in the project it's also just like well that's that's I mean it, it happened as a result of you know a, a lot of different accidents in my life and a lot of a lot of different like I don't know the 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 way that the academy works now is it, it's not there are people talking about like what the problem is in the academy it's, it, it's too many PhDs and not enough jobs but you know it's really to me it's just it's the not enough jobs part that's the, the 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 phd has been devalued to the point where um it's 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 not sustainable i hate to tell you that <laughs> well i guess um when you were
1: when you were an undergrad yeah. did you always want to um enter the academy did you always want to become a professor
0: um no no i i i, I majored in uh I mean I thought I was going to be a lawyer when I first started out and then and then I, I quickly realized I didn't want to do that and then I I studied film in at, at UC Santa Barbara. Um I wanted to like make movies and work in in Hollywood. I, LA was close by and I thought I would move down there and get get a like film career going. But I really was like naive about the value of my college education, that part of it. I was also naive about the industry. I mean, it's like the, you know Hollywood is its own monster that I didn't understand, and, and once I started working down there, I quickly realized I didn't want to be down there at all. I mean, not basically, I was working on a I was working on a sitcom uh, for NBC, like some really shitty sitcom in the in the in, in I guess it was two thousand one. When 9-11 happened and the way like I watched these craven Hollywood people react to like geopolitics was so insane. It made me like want to run away and run to the academy. I literally started investigating graduate school after that. This was in California. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like I, I didn't really envision myself becoming a professor until I started going to graduate school. And then I realized that's what you do when you become a phd in history what
1: was the craven response this is so interesting so i mean so describe what what kind of work were you doing on this sitcom and were were you were you like this sort of like like this innocence in this sort of (sighs) this sort of hollywood scene yeah uh
0: so it was a sitcom called three sisters that was only on the air for a little bit i don't even remember like who the big stars of it were um diane cannon was was on it um but it was you know they it was only on for like one season I happened into that job through like connection through college and I was a PA, I was a production assistant. I was like, I was at the lowest level. You like and, getting coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even worse though, like the, what they really make you do as a PA is a lot of just move that stuff over here, get with that guy and move that stuff over there and then go pick up lunch for everybody. And, and when you say lunch, it's like, I took, I lunch took me hours. I had to go around and like basically collect the lunch orders of like a hundred different people. And then get on the phone and call a restaurant and tell them like, just so you know, I'm going to give you a hundred orders right now. And they would be ready for it because it was Hollywood and they like, were ready to like cater these like different studios. But I mean, all that work was just awful and it was obvious that I was not going anywhere. I wasn't like going to be, I I wasn't going to be like directing a movie anytime soon or doing anything creative. I thought this, you know what? I remember the thought was this is a ladder I don't want to climb. And so I'm not going to, but in terms of like nine 11, yeah, it was just like, I don't, I, I, I don't want to make anything up specifically because I don't re- I don't re- I just remember the overall tone mm. of, of the overall tone of really 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 hyper nationalistic patriotism like I mean you felt that everywhere but like the idea that, that, that all these like left left I mean liberal Hollywood people as soon as the Twin towers fell were like we have to listen to George W Bush and we should stop any critique of what he's doing. And it was just like how they felt watching how people fell in line. And I don't think that was anything unique to Hollywood, obviously. Uh, But it just, because they were a group of such outspoken liberals and to see how quickly they were just like ready to basically go to war for George W. Bush and join up that day to do it was amazing because I didn't have that feeling. Like, and I felt really alienated. I was like, for me, when the twin towers were falling, I was thinking, this is the biggest disaster because George W. Bush is in charge now of this of this situation, and like I was just intensely, intensely concerned uh, that he was going to do literally everything that he did do, which was dismantle the Constitution and take the country to war, uh, permanent war, which we're still in. That's killed millions, um, well at least a million Iraqis. So watching that and knowing that was going to happen, and watching all the people surround me, uh, be really. Uh, a, drop all their critique of George W. Bush and the administration and get in line for whatever fascist war shit he was going to bring. That was highly disturbing to me. And I was like, I want to be around people that at least have something figured out. And that's when I started reading like that's when I started more, I think, reading, you know, the the usual suspects of like Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky and stuff like that. And like really deciding, yeah, I guess I guess I know who I am now because this happened and i didn't go the way that those people went and i didn't go the way that those people went i went the way that noam chomsky went and that that uh, that's i mean i he had that book 911 that was like sitting at the front of bookstores um and i picked that up immediately and i was like this is this is who i am um so yeah those events are pretty razor sharp uh so
1: um so what is interesting is that you did a BA in film studies mm-hmm. uh, and then ran yeah, as you say ran to the academy but you didn't run to cinema studies you ran to history yeah was that was that because you like people like Zinn and Chomsky were, were so resonant for you
0: yeah I mean I, I I also felt like I'd already done cinema studies um, I did actually do the doctoral certificate program in cinema studies at, at the CUNY Graduate Center so I did end up continuing with film studies but from the like that's and that's all the theory head stuff too you know and like if, if ever I want to hear about high theory uh, um, and in particular I'm talking about like the Frankfurt School I want to hear about it I want that you got to attach that to cinema or I don't give a fuck and so that's why why I like Zizek you know what I mean like and and like that guy has become you know a parody of himself in a lot of ways but like early on like his early stuff that I was reading graduate school that when he was like you know analyzing pornography from like a Marxist perspective that shit is awesome that's really, really great stuff, so cinema studies never went away for me, I studied history in part because I thought to myself, well i want to study i want to I want a broad area of inquiry. History has always been what I've been most concerned with, and I really did go in knowing that I really wanted to study the 1960s and seventies like that era is for me when you talk about like you know, we, we began this conversation talking about like the quote unquote revolutionary moment that I supposedly see now. I mean, that was to me a revolutionary moment or a pre-revolutionary or proto revolutionary moment in the sixties and seventies, probably more so in the seventies. I mean, we're living in the, we're living in a, a really harsh backlash to that. So I'm really kind of, uh, and I mean like a right wing backlash to the sixties. We're, we're still very much in that I feel. Um, and so I, Watching whatever is happening now, with like I don't know, Bush, Obama, Trump. I mean, we say them together like that, like those three. There's there's something, there's something quaking in America, and and I feel like we'll continue to watch it. And that's why I'm like really not super. I'm, I'm skeptical about it about predictions, but I feel like things are moving really really chaotically right now, and maybe more so um, than than we even think.
1: David Parsons, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me.
0: Appreciate it. Thank you so much. That
1: was David Parsons, an historian at NYU and host of the Nostalgia Trap. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual Conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies. And oh, what a year! Over a few months it's been for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.